to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right. Happy New Year, Glenn. We made it. Happy New Year, sir. I uh, I saw someone post uh, something on um, last week. It says, uh, thank you for the free seven-day trial of 2021, but um, I'd like to skip ahead to 2022 already. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. It has already been a crazy start to the year. Well, let me jump right into the anagram, our little game here this uh, oh, for the past six months, I guess, now. All right, Glenn, uh, Satan Notion. Satan? Satan. Not- Satan? <laughs> I can't even okay. hear that word. Notion. Notion, N-O-T-I-O-N. Um, okay. I can't even hear that. Would Santa Notion work? Oh, or, or Santa Notion, I guess. Uh, I just have flashbacks to Dana Carvey and the church lady, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, showing our age there. Uh, so anyway. all right, I think I got this one. Okay, uh, yeah, very good. I like it. I like it. So uh, uh, now for um, Patreon.com, uh, another thank you going out to a new patron we have uh, here recently, uh, Lawrence. Uh, thank you very much for for joining our little crew here and uh, sending a couple bucks our way i very much appreciate it yeah that's really cool uh, you were telling a story the other day on uh our little happy hour yeah. that we've been still doing on wednesdays you much more than myself just to be fair you're kind of managing all that so uh want to tell the listeners about this kind of cool story yeah yeah so that would be the first thing is if you're still looking to uh, to hang out with fingerprint people um, and sometimes talk about fingerprint stuff, um, <laughs> but most often devolve into other, you know, strange conversations. Um, we're still doing this, uh, this get together on discord on, uh, you know, Wednesday afternoons, uh, 5 PM Pacific and, uh, 8 PM Eastern. And you can reach out to Glenn or I to get the link, um, uh, or go back to some of the shows over the summer where we uh, included it in the uh, in the show notes or the the description of the show, I guess. Uh, well, anyway, um, uh, I, I had saw that someone new had joined our our little crew there on Discord, and uh, you know it was a couple hours before the happy hour was scheduled to start. It's also like a you can put post text messages uh, to the group as well. So I saw someone was on there and posted some message, you know, oh, come on and join in. Yeah, he said that, oh, he's, you know, he's fairly new at all this and, you know, doesn't know if he'd kind of fit in with, um, you know, with all the, I guess, serious fingerprint talk that we we do at these happy hours. And uh, it assured him that that's, that's definitely, <laughs> that's definitely not the majority of the conversations that we have. Uh, right. So um, anyway, so after he joined in on the voice chat, uh, it turns out it was Lawrence who who was also a new uh, patron uh, through Patreon.com, and uh, so we we asked him some questions about you know where he's working and you know how new is new to the field, uh, and he's still going through the training process, but you know told a story about how he had gotten his degree uh, and was. Um, you know, working just odd jobs uh, while looking for an agency to start with and uh, started looking around for forensic podcasts, found ours, uh, you know, got kind of infected with our uh, enthusiasm about fingerprints and, 
you know, regularly listened until uh, he got an interview and got hired on to begin training uh, as a latent print examiner. So, you know, we, we typically ask our guests, you know, what's your story about how you fell into this world of fingerprints? You know, and most people have a story about how they got pushed into it, but um, uh, everyone's story is slightly different. Um, uh, I think Alice still wins for craziest uh, set of circumstances. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, – but now we have a new version of the story where um, you know, the podcast itself was instrumental in bringing someone into the field. So that, that was that was just a really cool story to hear. Yeah, I, I wish I, I wasn't on that day, so I missed all that. But yeah, it was kind of cool hearing the, the origin story. Uh, again, as, as you've said, crazy origin stories, but kind of cool to get one early on and sort of pick their brains a little bit. Uh, absolutely, and we definitely did that that night. So, <laughs> hopefully, he comes back for a subsequent uh, uh, happy hour at some point too. Uh, so, all right, Glenda, what other um, topics do we have to get to before we get into the paper today? Right. So, you know, because we've been a little more sporadic in our, our recordings, more like once a month as opposed to weekly, I uh, had a few emails build up in uh, uh, in December. A uh, couple to share. We have one from Daniel, who has written us a couple times before, but he wanted to just kind of tell us that uh, he had been uh, on a podcast hiatus, trying to catch up on episodes, yeah. and he uh, he wanted to thank us again for all the great content. And you're quite welcome, Dennis. It's it's our pleasure. And tell you that he was very glad that we did an episode on the most dangerous animal of all. That was the Hulu. Um, uh, documentary, four-part documentary on the Zodiac Killer, and I think we might have even, maybe we mentioned it last time, but yeah. this uh, this documentary that I had a very, very small role in, and as I we had told listeners, I didn't know anything about what the producers were trying to uh, show or prove, but if you're interested, go back, check check those episodes out. It's it's kind of a it's a, it's a fun there's a fun twist in the documentary <laughs> that catches you off guard. Yep. And and uh, he was thanking us for that because he was I guess he had read the book that's based on. We talked a little bit about that. Yep. And when he was watching the documentary, he's like, "Oh my god, yeah, this is BS. This is BS. This is BS." And then there's this twist that happens in the documentary, and he's like, "Oh my god!" And so he was he was just really um, surprised about that. And said, yeah, 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 this is BS. And then when suddenly there's a twist, he says, damn, let me get my popcorn because this just got good. <laughs> and he wanted to share and say thanks again. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're, you're quite welcome. I thought it was uh, – again, it's, it's funny. I didn't tell you about the twist, and I remember when you experienced it. I know when I experienced it. So, if again, if you just haven't had a chance to see those episodes, it's, it's a really fun documentary. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, M. Night Shyamalan back when he was good kind of twist, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yes. and it, it's, it's just, it's also makes me smile thinking back on it and then also hearing other people with the same kind of story. So that, that's, uh, right. that's really cool. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then we have another one from someone I didn't know, didn't recognize. Uh, so, um, <laughs> it, it starts off with I'm a retired forensic scientist from, We'll say Southern California, 
uh, laboratory. Doesn't matter which one. We'll just we'll say Southern California. Sure. And uh, just got done listening to the two part OJ podcast that you you guys did in 2016. So right a few years back. Yep. And uh, just wanted to say if you ever update on OJ, you might want to mention that Henry Lee used the phrase "something wrong here." When he was testifying about blood swatches in glassine envelopes, at least one of the jurors latched onto that phrase and used it in a contemporary interview. Henry was implying that the LAPD had added OJ's blood to the blood swatch collected from the crime scene. So that was the well, – he's got two points. That was one of the first points. And yeah, I don't recall that phrase specifically, but I again, I do – Recall us talking a little bit about the addition of the potential blood, and I can't remember if it came up in that. Maybe it came up in Making a Murderer. Uh, that's probably where it came up, where they had been accused of that. So one of the things was if they were adding blood, did it have the EDTA preservative in it? And uh, the EDTA preservative test that we talked about in Making a Murderer had originated from the FBI – uh, because of the OJ case, I think they developed it specifically for that case uh, to uh, disprove okay. the allegation that uh, that blood had been planted by the LAPD. I'm pretty sure we mentioned it uh, in in that episode, and maybe it, maybe we just glossed over it. But I'm, I think it came up when we were talking about making a murderer. But yeah, I don't remember that phrase specifically. But yes, that uh, that is true. I mean, there were those allegations. I remember from, like you said, in the Making a Murderer episodes, that topic, obviously we talked about it quite a bit. Uh, I don't remember if we ever mentioned specifically that it had originated from uh, from the OJ case. Uh, it, it makes sense, you know, thinking about it in that context, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I, if I knew that before or if I had heard that before. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think when we talked about the paper – is the paper originating from the F from the FBI lab? I I kind of think it came up then, but anyway, uh, fair enough. Okay, and then a uh, second thing he wanted to add was about Mark Furman, and uh, well, I'll just read it, and you know, listeners can decide for themselves. I used to listen to a talk radio personality named Bill Handel. I actually don't know this person or know of this person. Bill Handel was defending Mark Furman from the charge of being a racist. Bill used a story where his wife was carjacked by a black suspect or suspects, and Mark Furman was the investigating officer. Bill Handel is an attorney in addition to being a morning drive radio talk personality. Bill claims that Mark was extremely professional and handled the suspects and victim, his wife, and showed no hint of racism. Mark Furman's racist behavior was investigated by the LAPD, uh, California Department of Justice, and the U.S. Department of Justice. These multiple investigations failed to turn up any substantial acts of racism. Most of the incidents described on the audio tapes from the North Carolina woman were found to have occurred with extreme exaggeration and fiction. Um, uh, I knew several of the LAPD forensic witnesses um, – and listened to the court proceedings on the radio while working in, in the serology trace section. And I know several people involved. Yeah, I don't I don't know that there's any point there other than um, don't judge Mark Furman, I guess, historically as a racist. I'm not sure that we were, but, you know, there were, I mean, 
I don't know. What if, thoughts, Eric? Sure. So, I mean, I think in the OJ episodes, you know, what what we came down to was the whether or not uh, those allegations against Mark Furman were, were true or not wasn't really the point uh, that that the jurors had really kind of made up their mind um, more so based on the uh, the Rodney King um, uh, right. you know the trial of the officers you know uh, in the the beating of Rodney King um, right. and and then you know, Mark Furman you know obviously you know, what what he did do to absolutely I think torpedo and you know any chance of conviction for for OJ. Uh, was when later on being asked about uh, the allegations of racism, uh, pled the fifth, and yeah, that, that's a good point. The uh, and that being more of the issue than you know any allegations in the past. Now, now for Bill Handel, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I would put him pretty much at the bottom of the list of of who to go to bat for you on not being a racist um, <laughs> as someone. Who, no. Uh, he, you, know, you, you know him. I don't. I don't even know who this he, person. He's is. he's been been uh, accused of quite strong racist language uh, quite a few times himself. So, um, mm. yeah, <laughs> not not the uh, not the best character witness um, uh, to nice. to mention. But uh, you know, I, I think again the the that issue of of you know whatever was on the tape. Um, why he had said that stuff on the tape uh, is really a secondary issue to yeah, um, agreed uh, to his you know taking the fifth. Yeah, and I think we took a pretty clear position. So I mean, racist or not, I, I don't, I don't think we even, I don't think we really explored it. Neither of us believed that Furman planted the blood evidence, and or the, the particularly the glove, I think was the biggest issue. And I and I think I mean our logic in that was very similar to that in making a murder is you have no idea who the killer is here. Right. I mean, what if all this other evidence comes out so early in the investigation? Why would you risk planting something? It just it logically it just doesn't make sense. You have no idea. I mean, what if OJ was on stage or something at you know the Tonight Show or you know <laughs> uh, literally there's some ironclad alibi that could have existed. Why would you take that chance before you even have all the facts and, and plant that? It just didn't make sense to me. So I guess I I always sort of looked at it as whether or not that's true. It, it like you said it's it's not really the issue and it's not really the issue that we explored. I don't really care one way or the other. It. It really wasn't, um, I guess, critical to evaluating the evidence in that case. Right, right. I mean, I, it made for a good defense. Exactly. Right, and it certainly played right into the expectations, the emotional zeitgeist, and everything going on in LA at that time with the with these jurors. Exactly. But it, it didn't necessarily, in our mind, have anything to do with the forensic evidence. Right, and and. Um, you know, and again, we, we tried to stick more to the forensic side of things, uh, even yes. and acknowledge that that case is, is about so much more, but, uh, yes. we, we tried to, to stick with the forensic part of it, even acknowledging that there is more to the case than just the forensics. Yeah, that's fair. And then we had, uh, one last email again, ticking all the boxes. Here. Sure. And this came from, uh, Tracy in Michigan. 
So, and, and actually in an area kind of close to where I grew up a little bit. Oh, so okay. that's kind of cool to see. Uh, outside of Detroit, just outside of Detroit. Just want to let you both know how much I have enjoyed listening to your podcasts. Since COVID started in March, we have been allowed to work uh, two days remotely, and the Double Loop has been my go-to. So that's that's cool to hear. Uh, I work in uh, XYZ Laboratory in Southern Michigan, and our lab recently purchased uh, the FSIS system from Arrowhead. I was wondering if you guys might be able to do an episode on what you know about this system, pros, cons, uh, any insight regarding any of this, etc. Uh, we all need to complete our training on it and uh, excited to start using this and hoping to see some great results. So I don't know this system, Eric, uh, FSIS. What, uh, what, what is this? So, so my understanding is it's similar in kind of concept to like a Ruvis uh, in, you know, a lighting system to really find and detect uh, fingerprints during processing. Uh, yeah. But my experience with, with Ruvis or IR, any kind of that really specialized lighting techniques uh, is pretty limited. Um, I got to play around with a, a Ruvis, I think back when I was working in, on the contract job with Saint, for St. Paul. You know, but it's pretty limited. You know, if if you know an examiner, you know, like uh, Tracy here, tests it out and has some stuff they want to share about it, I'm sure we, Glenn, we'd be happy to to uh, to to get her on and describe some of the pros and cons of of you know what she sees on the system. Oh yeah, for sure. We're always kind of looking for ideas, and right now we've noticed that sort of kind of need some more ideas for upcoming episodes. So yeah, that would be. That would be great. Um, so yeah, that particular system, I even less than the not much I know about Ruvis. So uh, you know, definitely uh, would would want to hear from someone who's had ha that hands on experience. All right. Well, those were uh, some emails that had come in that I wanted to uh, just uh, take care of, read out, and discuss. Sounds great. All right, Glenn, we ready for the uh, the paper here today? Yeah, I think so. All right, so uh, here just late last year in uh, the uh, Journal of Forensic Identification uh, was a paper published by Jeremy John and Henry Swafford uh, with the U.S. Um, Defense Forensic Science Center uh, evaluating the accuracy and weight of confidence in examiner minutia annotations. Uh, so essentially, this is, um, all right, if you're going to use gyro, are we any good at it? Like. Do, are, are, we, are people just making up the colors or uh, do the colors actually mean something when you start you know, using the green, yellow, and red, orange system uh, for marking minutia? Um, so obviously, Glenn, you, you, you know, first wrote a paper about uh, gyro describing the system and the potential uses for it um, and uh, you know, did some – um, you published some um, information on it uh, over the years, especially in your uh, in your thesis. Is that correct? Yeah, There's some data yep. in there about that. And yeah, if, if there is, if listeners, you know, our, our assumption first is probably at some point have heard about gyro. It's a color documentation scheme. It's a way to indicate your confidence in the in the existence of a feature. So green if you're highly confident, yellow if you're moderately confident, red if you have low confidence, and that's the G, Y, R in the gyro, and the orange 
is used to document features that you observed not in the analysis phase, but after looking at the exemplar in the comparison phase. And all of that came about during my thesis when my first early studies had examiners marking up characteristics in the analysis phase. And even though I was using instructions, very clear instructions like, this is how to mark minutia in this. You know, if it's an enclosure, mark two features. If it's a bifurcation, mark one. And I gave all these different examples. And then I would say only mark the characteristics that you're highly confident about, that you're sure are present. And then I would look at these markings and go, these can't be right. I mean, examiners were marking stuff just all over the place. And I it just – it occurred to me that there has to there has to be some some gradation into this level of comp- they can't all be certain about all of these features and um and it was also occurring at the same time that uh, a colleague of mine Josh Bergeron we were training this examiner and i've said a few times and i'll just kind of repeat it again you never know how you never know the limitations of your training system and your training approach until you have a bad student and yes. then it exposes all of the problems in your training program you know I, you almost barely need a training program when you have very smart good students who are motivated and are getting it and have no problem seeing things it's all emphasized when you've got a bad uh, i shouldn't say bad student but someone who's not getting it someone who's not seeing this and and really and trying to communicate with her, like how is she missing like all of these minutia? Why is she not marking the? Th- that's when it, these two things together at the same time, the light came on and said, "Oh, we need a a color coding system." And even as we were starting to do this, I remember her mentioning, "Well, we could do something like a traffic light." And bam, it just came right into focus. I went, "That's it. That's what we're doing." So if you're sure about them, mark them green, yellow, caution, red. At least come to a rolling stop. You know that was our that was going to be our communication system, and then it started working out really well. And then the, the next studies after that, I implemented Gyro and started testing it with the examiners that were in the study. And it was very clear not all minutia are perceived the same by examiners. I realize. 15, 16 years later, here we are, examiners are probably listening to this going, well, yeah, duh, of course. <laughs> um, again, a different you time. just don't have <laughs> – different times. <laughs> you just don't have the perspective of what it was like 20 years ago. And you know, I mean, there's still pockets. I still see it in some of the casework today where gyro is not used and they're all marked at the same level of confidence. And I just know, of course, that it's probably not the reality. But if those examiners aren't familiar with gyro, then they're just going to mark them all one color. And it becomes much more difficult to interpret how that examiner is actually perceiving those features. So that's a little backstory on gyro. So the, the, the main question here and then, then in this paper is – if you have the examiners go through and mark all these minutiae with these different, three different colors uh, for this study in just the green, yellow, and red, good, medium, bad, and then you, uh, you again, you just have the subjects mark the minutiae on the latent print, and then the the authors of the paper take a look at all of those images, compare them to the, I guess, more clear um, uh, the, the known print to see 
which of the marked features are actually real. Uh, so in this study, that was what they were looking at, is when you mark a feature in green, uh, what percentage of the time, if you were then to take a look at the, the known um, print uh, for, that, uh, for that same uh, finger on, for the latent, is the feature actually there? And what percentage of the time is a green feature actually there and exists in the known? Same for the uh, yellow and same for the red. Yeah. One of the things I just want to highlight is the original research that was done on gyro was done with, I think, 24 examiners I had on two latent prints, sort of a, a really poor quality latent print and kind of a moderate quality print. What I like about this study is that they had 18 examiners look at a data set of, I think it was, what, 300 latent prints? So they had a and, – and all kinds of um, uh, development techniques. And my original study was just two powdered latent prints. And this one, they were looking at anhydrin ones, fluorescent ones, superglue fumed ones, basically a, a really nice selection of latent prints that you encounter in, in various kinds of casework. So a much more thorough – I'd almost call this kind of a validation study, really. I mean, it has all the elements I'd look for in a validation study, even if it doesn't call it that. But yeah. I, I like that uh, thoroughness uh, that they explored. I'd have to double check, but the, the way that they phrased it here with the 300 latent prints were distributed amongst 18 different examiners. So yes. just with that phrasing, it may have been that that no two examiners looked at the same image. That Yeah, um, right. That they all just had their share of the 300, however that divides out. Uh, but um, still, a really broad uh, set of different uh, latent prints with different quality levels, different numbers of minutia uh, throughout. But like you said, all the you know, real common um, processing techniques, uh, modern processing techniques that, uh, that agencies currently use. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I will say it now just before I forget. I think you're right, Eric. I don't think anyone got any multiple copies of the same. So that's probably one of the limitations of the study Yeah, is that you can't do like a reproducibility um, you know, uh, data set on this. So we can't see like some of the other studies that were done uh, by the FBI, Noblis, the um, inter-examiner marking reproducibility that you see in these studies – I don't think we can do that with this. So that's probably one – I'd call it a small limitation, but you know, it wasn't their goal. But they could certainly do some follow-up if they gave those out to multiple examiners or the same examiner. They could do a repeatability study as well, which is something that, that was done in my thesis. Yeah, so the um, – and they even mentioned that towards the end, some of the limitations uh, where you know, they – like you said, they described that that wasn't really the goal of this particular study. Uh, but one of the other limitations um, or one of the other kind of aspects of the study design that would also limit it is that they told examiners to just mark up the latent until they thought that sufficient number was marked up. So they weren't asked to annotate all of the minutiae in each image. Sure. So you may – if you were to have multiple examiners do the markup, some may just not mark certain features. Uh, yeah. Where, so you couldn't really get an overlap. Um, you would have to have latent prints with just overall fewer uh, minutiae so, so that you can make sure that – and make sure that, every, that the participants know that they're supposed to mark everything that they see uh, throughout the print. Yeah, good point. 
So, uh, well, how did uh, we do that? There's you know, a lot of the paper goes into the details of, of how the study was put together, uh, how they counted and analyzed uh, the images in Photoshop, just kind of getting into to the nitty gritty of the, uh, of the, the analysis of the data. All right. So for the results of uh, this section here, where they're looking at just the accuracy of marking these minutiae, if a an examiner marked uh, a green feature uh, in the latent print, uh, they were accurate in placing that green feature there 96% of the time. So meaning about 4% of the time, that green feature, that green annotation that they placed wasn't actually on a, a minutia feature. For yellow, uh, when they're placing the, the yellow annotation markers, they were 82% accurate. Uh, so about 18% of the time when they, they placed a yellow marker where a minutia didn't exist. And then for red, uh, 68% accurate. Uh, it should be noted though that for the red minutia, uh, there were only 62 total red minutia used throughout all 300 uh, latent prints. So only like one red minutia annotation marker used for every third latent print uh, total throughout the whole study. Yeah. Were you surprised about that? <sighs> Disappointed. Do you yes. love red? You live in the red zone? <laughs> Surprise. No. <laughs> I, I, I know. I, and I was going to say that, that uh, later on that, you know, talk a little bit more about the red minutia, but I, I wasn't surprised because a, uh, it seems uncommon for examiners to use uh, red minutia. Overall, uh, they tend to to mark green and yellow, uh, and just kind of switch between those two. But then also, well, I've, oh, okay, uh, yeah. in this study Sorry. in particular, uh, they were told you know, only mark up as many minutia as you think you need. And then at some point you can stop. You don't have to mark up the entire latent print. So if you got through and you marked 20 minutia in the best areas, well, you don't really need to explore the bad areas. So you're not going to be mar using red a whole lot. Right. Now that, that makes sense. That would um, seem to drive that. And, and I guess I find that it varies a lot. I mean, uh, because I do gyro exercises in my courses, yeah. I, I see some examiners use red a lot, and I see some examiners use red sparingly. I used to use red a lot, and then I kind of stopped using red. I think we've talked about this in other episodes, but it's it's um I, I, I find that it varies. Uh, no, I, I and I think another factor that goes into it is is the software that you use, um, where if you're using Photoshop. It's really easy to switch between uh, green and yellow. Uh, all you need to do is make one your foreground color and the other one your background color, and then the X key on the keyboard will switch between the two. Uh, right. So you can become really efficient in using green and yellow. That's kind of an artificial limitation of the software, where if you had a keyboard shortcut to switch between three colors instead of just two, well, then I think... You know, um, the examiners that have that limitation would lose it. It would, it would, you know, hmm. kind of go back to, um, it might, might return back to using all three colors to, to have these uh, variations. So, huh? You think it's a clicking limitation? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, 
you because hmm. because the examiners one of the big limitations of gyro in total uh is uh clicking over on the um the palette menu to pick your color you know, every time you do that you have to look away from the latent print and anytime you're not looking at the latent print you're slowing down and you're losing your place uh i mean the whole point of just using that x key for the examiners who do that is so they don't have to lose their place they can keep looking at the ridge detail on the screen uh so which is why i built a photoshop plugin that uh, lets you switch between um, all four colors uh, with keyboard shortcuts and you know the, all the work I'm doing you know now for um, uh, developing annotation tools uh, in AFA software you know includes gyro and allows the keyboard to switch between those colors okay yeah I mean, that's uh, that's interesting I mean I know my my process is you're right I set my green I set my yellow I flip back and forth and kind of when I'm all done with my green and yellow then I go back and go do I want to pick up any red but I I guess I mean for me I have a personal let's not overuse red if I really think I need to grab a couple all right but I just tend to I guess I, I because I've calibrated myself with red that I'm I can get so many of them wrong. I guess we'll get to accuracy here in a second. Sure. I guess because so many of red tend to be wrong, I have begun to question the usefulness of it. And I know you and I have done video some videos before and we're going to try to be getting back into doing some videos with markings and I've seen I've seen you in action use red. I'm amazed of a number of red that you select, but more importantly, I'm amazed at how many of your red are so accurate. That's what I can't believe because all the data I've ever seen with red is eh, close to half of them or two-thirds of them. Um, you know, the accuracy I expected for red is somewhere between 50% and 66%, which was crazy because in the study it was 68%. Yep. That's that's right where I would have guessed it to be. So slightly higher, but if there were more red that had been used, I usually see between 50 to 66% accuracy on red. So that kind of fit with my expectations. Well, you know, that's actually what I wanted to talk about first was these numbers, right? Um, 96, 82, and 68. Um, the, yeah, those those all fall in what my expectations are. I was going to say that's that's what I try when I do classes that involve using gyro. You know, I say I think I generally say for green ninety five, for yellow, you know, somewhere in the I think it's usually like seventy five to eighty kind of range, and for hmm. red, fifty to sixty uh, as kind of like a target um, to, to aim for. Interesting. So. Yeah, this this kind of uh, falls right in line with uh, with that, and and you know that part of it was like, oh, okay, well, good. That that just means that the examiners at this agency that participated are kind of thinking about uh, their confidence of minutia in the same way that we are. I think is probably the best yeah. way to put that. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think when I do my teaching, I tell examiners. For me, when I – especially when I first started using gyro to where I am now, I think we've even discussed in other episodes. There's a little calibration that occurs, particularly with green. I usually tell examiners when I'm marking green, I try to get between 150 and 1 in 100 wrong 
or not try to get, but that's my tolerance is if I'm getting more than one in 50 wrong, so that's 98%, right? right. So I'm shooting for 98 to 99% accuracy with my green. And just just last week, I went through and pulled a bunch of latents I had marked. I don't have exact ground truth in these because they're, they're cases. Uh, so I, but I was just double-checking it, and it, it, I, was, I was amazed. Uh, I had one, one minutia wrong in like 80 markings, and then in another case I had I think one in 95 markings. So I was like right on, on target for what I was looking for for my accuracy with that. So, you know, 99 to 98%. Is what I shoot for. So when I saw ninety six, I went perfect. That's uh, that slightly lower than I would have gone for because that's effectively one in what twenty four? No, one twenty. Is that right? One in twenty four? Yeah, yeah, right around there. One in twenty five or so. Okay. I, I I think I would encourage a little more accuracy on the green. Well, you know, that that comes into one of the the main points that I wanted to make in this discussion, and and that's that's really in not really a comment on this paper in particular, because I think they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish in this paper. Yes, uh, but it's more as a setup for the next paper, um, and it's okay. That this is how examiners perform when they're asked to here follow these rules and go right. But what if what if what if you were to uh, actually you know provide ongoing training, let examiners evaluate their performance, change their behavior to hit certain targets. Right. Calibrate. To calibrate themselves. Exactly. And calibrate with feedback. I think that that kind of biofeedback is, is really important uh, to uh, for examiner to utilize these different colors, you know, in in the way that's kind of set up for them. So if an agency says, all right, we want to hit 98% on the green, uh, say 80 on the, uh, the yellow, I don't know, 60 on the, on the red or whatever it is, you have an agency may set up certain targets of this is what we're, we're aiming for when we use these different colors. Then as the examiners, you know, get feedback of just doing their normal comparisons, uh, they can see, Oh, uh, I'm, um, I'm, I'm down at 94% for the greens. I got to bump that up. Uh, or, or I'm, I'm up at 90% for my yellows. I gotta, I gotta upgrade some of my yellows into the green zone to, to, you know, uh, so that the, there's some separation between the greens and the yellows and, uh, adjusting that behavior being, uh, you know, good weights so that, uh, you know that you're using these colors in a way that matches how they're described, but also that you're using the colors in the same way that the coworkers sitting at the next desk over are using the colors. Yeah, that's very important. Right. And I think that that kind of biofeedback is really the only way to to make those kinds of adjustments. And um, I, I think it could be really effective in cleaning up some of the noise and differences between examiners uh, as opposed to just kind of winging it based on a, a paragraph description of what they should be doing. Agreed. No, I, I definitely agree. I mean, even as the creator, I found myself trying to recalibrate and readjust. And I wasn't, you know, I had to kind of train myself initially through calibration as well. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I experienced that myself. So the, one of the, one of the, 
questions that really comes from that, from that calibration is, well, what do you calibrate to? Uh, because calibrating to hit specific accuracy numbers is one way to do it, but it, it's not the only way to do it. Uh, and in the paper here, there's a, a couple other things that they explore, which could be other options on how to calibrate. And one is how examiners markup of minutia using green, yellow, and red corresponded to, uh, LQ metric and, uh, Defiki, uh, scores for image quality. So before we get into that, into those, that little discussion, uh, from what the paper says, it, that could be another way to do it. You know, have examiners get feedback to, are you put using the same color that, that LQ metric uses to paint that, uh, that area of the fingerprint. Now there's definitely pluses and minuses to trying to hit these different targets and examiners would be, would be adjusting how they use these different colors in different ways, depending on what target that they're trying to hit where they could get really good at being, accurate or hitting like these accuracy numbers, but that, that may not affect how they perform in trying to use the same color that LQ metric or Defiki uses. It just depends on what kind of biofeedback is coming to the examiner. Yeah. Let's, let's just for the listener, if you're unfamiliar with these two software sure, and the LQ metric we've talked about, I think in other episodes, right? So this is the ULW software that gives a quality map and a rating score, but it shows uh, with a click of the button in a latent print, it shows you high quality, uh, uh, rich detail, uh, where it can even detect level three detail. And um, it has this basically kind of like a four color scheme where it's got blue for the level three detail and very high quality, rich detail, green for uh, I think what it call uh, what's it called unambiguous minutia and, and ridges. So green and yellow and red, and so it's got these four different. So I've never used, and it's funny. You're right. It's um how how do they what do they call the other one? What's, what's the army crime lab called? <laughs> Defiki. Defiki. So whenever I see that, because of stupid calculus, I want to call it Diffie Q. Ah, yeah. Like differential equations, because that just gets stuck in your head. But I know it's not that, but I'll never get that out of my head. I always see Diffie Q, but Diffie QI. I can can totally see that. Um, uh, (laughs) Yeah, D-F-I-Q-I. And if I can remember incorrectly, the way that Henry pronounces it is Diffie Q. So that's that's kind of what I've taken (laughs) on. Okay. Take it on. Yeah, and I'm glad. I'm glad you said it because I would have definitely said Diffy QI. <laughs> so the, there's. Uh, I just want to mention the the other two colors, Glenn. There's also Aqua, uh, which yeah, oh, is yeah. Yes. the not uh, not only for blue is edges and pores. You know, might be there, um, but Aqua's pores and and edges are super clear. And then at the bottom, there's technically a sixth color of black or just no ridge detail. Uh, right. Which, debatable whether you want to consider that one of the colors. But in the in the table in the paper and in the noblest papers where Alchemetric comes from, you know, those are the six yes. colors that are used. Yeah, and I'm trying to think. I don't know that I've ever seen Aqua show up in the quality map. I mean, it may be there and you have that as a potential examiner marking. I've never seen Aqua actually show up in the quality map. Uh, well, you, you do have to get a good one. 
Maybe maybe try <laughs> running it on next time you're playing with the software on one of the knowns and see what happens. Okay. Yeah, I can give it that a try. I, I don't ever recall seeing it, but <laughs> and heck, even in the image on in this paper, you only see the you only see four colors: <laughs> the blue, yeah. green, yellow, and red. Because uh, the black is generally represented as as no color. Instead of using the black, it's it's kind of the right. uh, to indicate that there's no ridge detail there. Um, and then this particular one just doesn't have the aqua used. Yeah. So, uh, but real quick on Tafiki, this is again a an image analysis algorithm uh, developed by by Henry and team at the uh, Defense Department uh, to analyze latent prints uh, under a number of different uh, factors uh, and have a green, yellow, and red, kind of a three-tier color system to represent good, moderate, and bad areas of the latent print. Uh, So so similar kind of concepts between them just developed by these two different groups. Uh, So in the paper, uh, I describe that when the analyst uh, marked a uh, feature as green, and it was confirmed as being a real minutia feature. Uh, Defiki used their green uh, color on sixty-nine percent of those um, marked green features, and used yellow for twenty-five percent. Uh, for for Elkymetric, uh, a little bit more separation. Uh, the green features marked by the examiners that were correct. Uh, 73% of those were Elkymetric green, well, green plus, green, blue, or aqua, and uh, 23% were yellow. Mm-hmm. For the minutia marked as yellow by the examiners that were correct, correctly marked minutia, in Defiki, 40% of those were uh, actually green zones for Defiki, 38% in yellow zones for Defiki. And then the same ones in Elkymetric, 47% in green plus zones, 39% in uh, the yellow zones. But overall, I think what the, the story that they're, they, they tell here in the results section uh, is basically 80 plus percent um, of both the marked green and marked yellow features um, are green or yellow by these um, systems. Yes. There, there's a, a strong correlation to the examiner's perceived confidence in the existence of the feature to high clarity regions as determined, if we will, objectively from this software that effectively measures the clarity of the image. And I think there's a limit there in, in how closely examiners can match these uh, these automated algorithms that just look at like image quality. Yes. Uh, because there's, there's some, I'm glad, I'm glad you're pointing this out. Well, there, there's some minutia features that you can see as super obvious. Yes. uh, That just might happen to be in an area that is a little bit lower image quality. Uh, but the presence of the minutia is just not debatable by even the, brand newest of trainees uh it's just it's clearly there so the examiner was go oh yeah it's 99 that's a green market which then kind of throws into the question of well what do you want the examiners using the same colors that defiki or elkymetric would use or 
you know, are, should we measure examiner performance by how accurate they are at marking minutiae that actually exist? Yeah, and I, I, I'm a bit of a fan of the latter, but I like guidance from the former. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I had the same feeling is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the old uh, fingerprint example of when you've got three ridges going into a distorted area and two coming out, you know there is an event in there, even though you can't see it, but you're sure there's something going on in there. It's a little bit of that where some of the, the distortion effects might lower the quality locally, and so the, the these software scores begin to drop for that region. But like you said, it's so obvious that there is a feature there, and I too would have placed a green on it, even though it might have been what this system is deeming maybe as a yellow or bordering a red zone. But to me, it's just I'm so certain there's a feature there. I'd be shocked if it isn't. And I, and we've trained examiners so well on feature selection, even clearly with these results. I'm kind of with you that it, it's, it's kind of – it's tough. I don't know that I would want to completely cut that off. I think the the mm, – the compromise that I made a long time ago, the internal deal with the devil that I made uh, <laughs> with myself, is that I always felt if we should have any rules here, what we should really do is recognize that any minutia that appear in a green zone, we should effectively go, we're fine with this, right? You know, we, it's really not up for debate. They're going to be accurate. They're in a green zone. If you can make your ID on solely minutia in a green zone, this is a non-complex, straightforward, let's not worry about this kind of impression. When they're in the red zone, I think there's a lot of debate, and I think we need some rules about using minutia in what these softwares would call a red zone. I mean, the red zones in these software are really terrible. And so if you are making your ID solely on minutia or predominantly on minutia in the red zones, we might have a problem. And that's where I think problems arise. The interesting part is what to do with the yellow, which is kind of moderate. Should we have some rules like no more than 20% of your minutia that go towards your ID can be in a yellow zone. Or if they are, then it kicks it up to a complex level and you need XYZ enhanced verification or something. I'd be fine with some guidance on that. I'd love to see some research that ties like a quality control into this without being completely beholden to you must do what the software says. Because I agree with you that you'd be losing some great examiner performance that we see in these data and these examples. Well, and it, it may be a matter of, of you know, both the manual and automated uh, methods being used together and, and improving each other. You know, a, a really thorough study of, uh, of gyro performance for examiners on you know on accurately seeing and using minutia of uh, based on uh, accuracy numbers you might be able to be used to do a LQ metric version 2 that more mm. closely uh, follows what what colors examiners typically <laughs> use well we know of course that's never going to happen because the vendors are not the same with LQ metric. In fact, examiners should not expect any update on LQ metric uh, unless it's done by a external third-party company vendor. 
Well, I, I believe that would be that would be cool. I believe LQ Metric is was was built by Noblis, uh, if I remember correctly. Yes. And but they they lost the contract. Oh, oh, they lost it years ago. Yeah, right, they that's right. they publicly said don't expect this to ever be updated. Right. So then it's then it's up to you know whoever wants to take the banner and run from there. Uh, A third party APHIS vendor, perhaps. So. <laughs> To be unnamed. Well, that, that that might start with let's start with the, what's what exists, the LQ metric, and then kind of go from there. Uh, sure. But, um, yeah, the well, then you tie it into APHIS, and and part of the way that APHIS is improving is with this you know, deep learning AI kind of stuff, uh, right? Where, the, but the problem with that is, okay, the accuracy is now five percent better than it was two years ago. Um, However, we no longer know why it's working better. <laughs> it just is. So, right. Uh, um, Skynet has taken over. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's, there's, that is, that is a trade off that, uh, that you make for that, uh, that improved accuracy. But, yeah. Um, no, I, I, I completely agree that that's, that is a, uh, that is a an option that should be on the roadmap uh, for well for whatever software um, examiners use to do their comparisons in uh, you know because there's I mean some examiners use Photoshop some use other non AFIS software some use AFIS software and yeah. uh, you know whatever examiners use you know, should have a way to well a mark out gyro features uh, but also b um, you know, mark out or automatically map out the uh, the quality areas of the image. Yeah, yeah, and it, it it's a tool that I've been using now for years, and I and I love showing it and teaching it, and I just I think it's such a useful tool. Uh, LQ Metrics is the one I'm familiar with. I mean, it came really far, but there are still little problems with it that it just never quite never quite benefited from what I would call that second phase of all right. We got this now. Now that we're getting feedback, here's how we begin to improve it. It's like so many government contracts. You have this limited period, and once it runs out, that's it. There's no mechanism for improvement. It just it'll never go anywhere because it's not like it's not like a third party AFIS vendor or some other vendor where there's this competition between vendors. So there's a motivation to improve this to compete with your, um, you know, with your opposing competitor. And that's why I'm just so hopeful that this lands in, if not an AFIS environment, then in maybe even some of these DIMS environments, you know, like, um, uh, who am I thinking? Foray or Midio or something? You know, maybe they can develop something like this because then, again, like you said, it's it's accessible during your your analysis and comparison stages. I, I hope it's available soon. I um, and I'm definitely doing whatever I can to make it available as soon as possible. Uh, yeah. So I know you are. You're one of the good ones. You get it. <laughs> uh, and um, well, it's not just getting it. It's also you know, sharing that with other people and ha- getting other people to get it as well. And, uh, right. um, heck I was, was I, I was talking to Henry today. Um, uh, actually just coincidentally. Were you? And yeah. <laughs> and, uh, did he know we're going to talk about this paper? No, I don't think he, I, I didn't mention it, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
you know, made some comment about, you know, um, a growing part of my job being the translator between latent printees and mm-hmm. engineerees. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, lots of opportunities to, to, <laughs> to translate between these different groups. But I like that. Good. I like doing that. So, yeah. All right. Well, anything else on, on the paper? I mean, it, it was pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty simple. And I, again, like you said, kind of confirmed some things we already know and set up a nice little roadmap for, for future testing. I, I enjoyed this paper. I, I both author. I mean, I love Henry, but I think the primary author here was probably Jeremy, Jeremy Johns. And I've known Jeremy over the years. I remember when he started as a trainee in one of my courses. I remember meeting him years ago. It was one of the first courses I taught. And Jeremy John, he's uh, he's a great guy. Also has some experience with uh, footwear. So I'd be curious if the footwear field would be interested in adopting gyro. Or if any latent print examiners who also do footwear, have you ever attempted to import gyro into that field? Since, of course, it would certainly translate. I'd love to, to see if anyone has attempted that or doing that, or even if we hear from Jeremy, if, uh, if he's ever thought about that. Do you know anything, any, any thoughts there? Oh, I, I totally agree that it would, it would fit right in, I mean, hand in glove with, um, from a non-footwear examiner, but um, that I, I definitely see the potential for, um, you know, for them to mark these, these especially the... Uh, Acquired uh, randomly acquired characteristics. There you go. Um, uh, racks. Racks. The you know, marking those out. The the pattern, the sole pattern overall. You know, uh, you know, maybe that doesn't really have to be uh, have that same kind of variation in color. Uh, but those, in the, in the same way that we don't mark level one detail pattern with gyro. Right. Um, I mean, you technically could mark like. But it's more like the precise location of a core delta, um, sure. As opposed to, because um, it's, it's so obvious that it's that it's there. Uh, it's more the precise location, almost as a minutia feature. But um, yeah, the 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 random uh, features, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, because it just. It, I mean, again, as non-examiner, there it just seems so. Uh, it seems obvious that there would be the same kind of differences in examiner confidence as to the existence of these different features. Right. Yeah. I'd, I'd be curious. I mean, I know ASB, you know, from the Canadian perspective has been used for a long time in footwear and tire, uh, tire, tire tracks. Right. But I don't know a whole lot about modern approaches to ASB. I don't know if they've adopted more of a linear approach or do they, you know, when they are comparing the the latent impression, are they comparing it side by side with the known simultaneous? Do they really have a distinctly separate analysis phase? So I don't know a whole lot about that. And now that as I'm saying this out loud, I'm kind of wondering, we should get a footwear expert on to kind of talk about how they apply ASV. Sure. Uh, so I think I know who to talk to. I'll I'll do a little do a little research and maybe we can get a footwear expert on to talk about their version of ASV and how it's applied. Yeah. I think I know well, I mean, we, can, we can reach out to. There's plenty of footwear slash latent print examiners that, you know, that kind of speak both languages as well. So yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, g- getting footwear to use gyro. I mean, that's, that seems minor league, right? That seems just uh fairly easy. Glenn, I, 
Yeah, no, let's get let's... let's get DNA using gyro. That's, that's a big <laughs> so I've there. actually thought about that in my little DNA group that I've joined here. I've actually thought about sharing gyro with them, but now that they're in probabilistic genotyping software, they don't need it. Right. They're already addressing that issue very nicely and, and but I have thought about that with old school DNA analysts. But yeah, anyway, it's well. First off, it's 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 how crazy is it that there are now old school DNA analysts? Uh, no, there are. <laughs> oh, there are. That's <laughs> uh, just you know, such a, a strange concept um, of, of something I remember coming you know into the into the world. But uh, yes. So one, just one last uh, you know, th- thought about the paper here. Uh, towards the end, they do list off a few uh, different possibilities of where uh you know how this research could be applied in the laboratory you know one is like you said um using a combination of the number and colors of uh, of these minutiae along with the um the automated quality analysis to set up very clear rules as to which latent prints um are deemed suitable during the analysis phase uh i mean overall you know, we've talked before about how gyro is helpful in resolving conflict, and uh, you know, especially if an agency is already set up where all the examiners are using the colors in the same way, uh, um, and not even the same colors. But if if you mean if like the quote unquote green, if someone just sees it better as purple. I don't, I've never seen a problem with that as long as everyone knows what is your good, medium, bad uh, color system. Uh, and then they mentioned here like different weights, giving uh, a point to green, two thirds to yellow, zero points to red. Eh, not sure about that. Um, and, and yeah, I use one third in my in my own scheme. Uh, one two thirds, like exactly what they said. Yeah. One two thirds and and one third. And then have a certain number that you have to get to before you can deem a um, uh, a latent as suitable for comparison. Uh, I, I think. You know, more research would be required to kind of validate that that system. But um, you know, as a a next step, I, w- I wouldn't say a starting point because I think some of your papers are the starting points. But as the next step in the research into gyro, uh, this definitely took a big step in that direction, uh, and then asks plenty of good questions for the next step in the research. Yeah, agreed. All right. Um, so, Glenn, any uh, any classes coming up you want to mention? Yes, uh, I'm still doing the webinars uh, through Evolve Forensics, and they've been filling up nicely. So if you're interested, you better look now because they're filling up a few, uh, you know, a couple months in advance. But plenty of webinars like on the OSAC scale and uh, uh, discriminability of minutia, conflict resolution, bias, a number of them. Check them out. Also, Alice White has a number there. And, um, you know, until we're back live with conferences, which I guess that was something I wanted to mention, check out the webinars Evolve Forensics. The IAI has opened their registration for 2021. I'm very excited about this, Eric. Like, this will be the first conference in a long time, a year and a half. So Fingers crossed. uh, Fingers crossed that it's going to go. They've opened it for submitting workshops and lectures. So go to www.theiai.org and you can register for the 2021 – register your presentation for the 2021 
IAI conference in Nashville, Tennessee. If it goes, we're going to be there, right, Eric? We will be there. Right. No, yeah, we, we will. And and um, I, I just hope that, that they have a backup plan to do it remotely if it comes to that. You know, there, no. there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with hoping for the best, but, you know, planning for the worst uh, – as I, I think that that's that's important. The Chesapeake Bay Division did it remotely a few months ago, and I thought that turned out really well. I, I've heard now that the California Division is going to be doing it remotely in April. That's obviously a sooner than the than IAI all the way in August, but uh, you know, fingers crossed. But you know, I, I think also for planning for both scenarios would be a really good idea. Sure. All right, Glenn. We rearrange the letters of Satan and. Uh, Satan notion was the word. Uh, what did you unscramble from there? Well, that one was I, – I, I don't know. I, I seem to see it pretty quickly. That was annotations. Now, if we had done gyro annotations, we could have done uh, Satan orgy notion. I, I was wondering if you were going to mention the the, the other alternatives for using those four colors uh, in a different order. Uh, so – yes. <laughs> So <laughs> that would be one. Uh, right. Yeah. If, if, if in in uh, the in our brand of anagrams, yes, uh, one of the best anagrams for gyro, of course, is orgy. I, and a little side note: when I was teaching in Europe, you know, they they do use gyro, and I, we've used it in our. French speaking class and then our German speaking class and I remember there's a ver there actually is a version of the gyro paper in German a student from class actually translated into German and kind of made it available to German speaking students and I remember that the the acronym for this one gets gets you know quite um not messed up, but uh, changes. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's quite different because, the, of course, the colors are very different. Well, well Glenn, since you know, the anagram's over, let, let's explore what what gyro would be in some other languages. Right. So in German, it would be gigro, <laughs> g g r o. <laughs> okay. Right, because green is gruna and yellow is gelb, so two G's and an R and an O. Well, I got the uh, Spanish would be Varn, uh, like you know, hey Vern, it's Ernest, but with Varn with an A instead. Uh, Verde, Amaria, Roja, Naranja. Aha. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. And and French. <laughs> yep, would be V J R O Vijaro. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that you know other languages could play with other colors to. Uh, to get some sort of you know anagram to work out or acronym I guess, uh, but uh, you know the green, yellow, red works so well as you know the you know traffic stoplights. Yeah, clearly it was best in English, so <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm glad it was done. In well, and English. you've said before as, as you taught in European countries, every country seems to have a different version of how they even say gyro, gyro, euro, gyro, gyro. True, true, uh, true, true. So. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, like, gyro swag in this episode. Hey! Right? I mean, that would be silly not to mention, hey, like gyro? Well, guess what? We got hats. We got shirts. We got mugs. Uh, we got sw all sorts of merchandise uh, at our Double Loop Podcast store. Uh, so if you head over to DoubleLoopPodcast.com, 
there's a merchandise link and you can kind of explore from there uh, all the different options uh, to you know be loud and proud with your with your gyro color scheme yeah and who designed those again uh, well, I, I think I think I designed some of the stuff. Uh, Carrie designed some of the stuff. Uh, I really like Carrie's you know, actual GYRO design. It, it pops really nicely. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I can swing the trucker hat uh, gyro, <laughs> but but a, uh, um, a a mug or a shot glass might be uh, you know still a, a nice addition to the uh, uh, to the desk. Cool. All right. Well, uh, if you have any comments or questions, uh, you know, emails, feedback for us, um, like Glenn mentioned earlier, suggestions for more shows. If you have a topic idea, heck, we might even bring you on the show. Uh, s- send us, uh, you know, whatever comments you have to Glenn, G-L-E-N-N at eliteforensicservices.com uh, or to Eric at rayforensics.com. Wpodcast.com is also where you can get links to the social media uh, stuff. The opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. Hey, something I used to say all the time, I think I forgot, started forgetting about a year ago. Uh, you can find us uh, on uh, iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher. Uh, that's it for this episode. Have a good one, guys. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and try to stay sane out there. <laughs>